Welcome to episode 11 of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Barantha. This is Jörg presenting uh, our host with a sexy French accent. <laughs> yeah, that would be me, I guess. I'm uh, Lido, aka Lord Abdul. And uh, this week we are welcoming again uh, Drew Becker. Uh, hi, Drew. Hi, everyone. Uh, we have you back because last time you were a great commentator on the travels of uh, Bitter and Varish. But also you uh, put out your own new book on the Johnson Companion, which happens to be about traveling, which means that you are uh, doubly qualified to uh, be guest in this uh, episode. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be invited back after the uh, the comments on Umalio last time. I feared that I would be uh, thrown into outer darkness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, here you go with us again. Yeah. <laughs> But before we dive into, indeed, um, more Vitorian Varosh Praxian adventures, uh, what's been going on? What's new? Oh, I could ask you that because you were there. Uh, there happened to be the first ever Chaosium Con. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, I was there. Um, this is actually the first convention that I went to, as in, like, you know, took some sort of mode of transportation that isn't just a bus ride uh, to go to. So I really don't have much point of comparison with anything like, you know, Gen Con or Gary Con or anything, which I've never been to. Because, you know, going to a place where there's a lot of people is not my idea of fun. But, you know, I couldn't really pass on the first Chaosium Con. Uh, it was great. Uh, we saw a lot of people, met uh, a lot of other Uh, gamers, Chaosium employees, or uh, otherwise. There was um, uh, an alarming amount of people who would hear me talking across the room and then suddenly turn around and say like, hey, aren't you the one with the podcast? Um, so <laughs> uh, I guess there are actually more than a handful of people listening to us, uh, which is good. And, <laughs> but yeah, I wrote a lengthy article about Chaosium Con on the blog, trying to just uh, chronicle what happened there. I ran two games, one Call of Cthulhu and one RuneQuest, with the RuneQuest one featuring an old Telmori uh, cast, uh, where the, the, the players are Telmori Wolf Brothers who go to a... Um, diplomatic banquet to try and you know divide the vacated wolf's land with the with the neighbors but they pass out and when they wake up everybody's dead and they're covered in blood so it's a lot of fun um <laughs> so that's that's the that's the that's the premise yeah as diplomatic banquets go yeah yes <laughs> uh so that's the premise of of that adventure i'm hoping to maybe write it down and put it up for Uh, Johnson Companion at some point um, I'm still on the finishing touches of, of my second one uh, but anyway and uh, I might remind people that if you want to know about uh, any new blog article and news and stuff like that uh, in the world of Glorenta we have the Journal of Renex Studies which comes out every week generally on Sundays and sometimes on Mondays when I'm too busy or I'm procrastinating too much. And it tells you almost everything that happened during the week that has to do with Glorantha, 
directly or indirectly. Uh, and it includes an archive of Jeff's posts on Facebook with some annotation that I hope are interesting. Um, it includes, you know, new Johnson Compendium items, any blogs or uh, blog articles or episodes we put out. And it includes also a whole bunch of other things from around the internet, from reviews that have to do with Clorentum products to interesting articles to even just like fun historical or geographical things that you can include in Glorenta. So uh, do subscribe to it or check it out. We'll have links in your yeah. show notes. Um, and speaking of the Johnson Compendium, like we said, Drew, you have some new book out. What is it and what is in it? Uh, yes, there's a, a new publication from us. It's called Highways and Byways, a Wayfair, Wayfarer's Companion. It kind of does what it says in the tin, really. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> oh, it comes it's, in uh, the tin? <laughs> it, it can do. Uh, we are looking to do that um, when it goes um, uh, gold. Is a special metal tin. I shouldn't say that because people actually want it, won't they? Um <laughs> <laughs> it, it's going to require some uh, very specific uh, POD service for the, the the physical version of the book. But yes, yes, it's uh, it's going to be like the um, cuneiform tablet, yes, uh, yeah. starter edition. <laughs> um, <laughs> Although the, the so, cuneiform version, you can actually get some small cuneiform tablet uh, because they actually got the idea from a stupid website which is called uh simple cuneiform or stupid cuneiform i don't know we'll have the link in the show notes but you can actually send a a, a short message to the website and they send you back a small tablet you know about the size of your hand with your message printed in cuneiform i actually have one in my house where i printed a, a message on it so you can you can actually get something printed on the small cuneiform tablet if you want but anyway i digress please keep going <laughs> it's, it's never a digression so the origins of this uh, publication really came from uh, working out stuff for the for another publication which we're working on which is about ducks. Um, uh, may, may be controversial, may, may not be controversial. Um, so, so we were working on that. And then there were some questions which were raised um, in the last God Learner podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, okay, let's, uh, let's look at this in, in more depth. Then, of course, we had the, the Starter Companion, which has the really lovely maps. The Starter and Set, it was, yeah. And the, sorry, the Starter Set, yes. Mm -hmm. And it was a case of, well, there's a lot of information on those maps. And is it confusing? Um, I mean, they're beautiful pieces of art, but can we kind of strip it back to almost like the, the London Underground map? <laughs> and there's, there's, you know, to, to give people information, um, and it's as with all the, the quad series, it was a case of um, will this save um, the game master time while they're prepping their games? And, you know, the journey is always more interesting than going to wherever to beat something up or rescue somebody. Um, so that was the kind of origins of it. Um, and with the distance, sort of distance maps, which are, which are in there, there was a whole bunch of other stuff that came out. So started to look at time 
as well. Um, if you remember from the last podcast, there was a, a comment, Drew, you're obsessed with time and distance. Well, the, I wrote a publication on it, so it yes. wouldn't have happened if, if you hadn't have said that, Luda. There you go. <laughs> uh, I should have credited you. I didn't. Mia told That's fine. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> but it's been up for um, two, almost two, uh, just over two weeks now, and mm-hmm. we are just shy of going silver. Ooh, nice. So we're very, Congratulations very pleased on that. with the sales. Yeah. And we had some very nice uh, feedback, some very positive feedback. Cool. Um, yeah. n- nobody's raised a massive red flag. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's got uh, like, you know, distances and times for traveling, all kinds of segments of journeys all around the, the, the South Tower map. Uh, and also, you know, stuff like the sunrise and sunset times so that, you know, if you arrive when it's already dark or if there's still a bit of light and things like that. So this is a great reference book, basically, for um, any GM yeah. who uh, has a travel to do. I'm a bit curious how you reconciled all of the let's say, uh, not always agreeing sources on where things are and what, <laughs> what, what belongs to who and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So having consolidated all the maps which I could find, there are a, a big dis- big discrepancies. Yes. Uh, so I took the decision to say that this is the, the, the correct map. This is the most up-to-date map. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so... Then how do you start to reconcile those differences? And the the thought came, well, the whole place, uh, well, the whole of Dragon Pass has been racked by the Dragon Rise. You've got this eight-kilometer beast right, rising into the sky, destroying a bunch of stuff. So things will have shifted around. You know, the Upline Marsh has expanded, for instance. Um, people will have moved. You've had a war that's been going across. You've had uh, the Great Winter. So places will have been abandoned and, or perhaps just up sticks and moved to consolidate somewhere else. So that was the, the kind of thinking behind where things yeah. are and aren't. And I think you're onto something with that because geography doesn't need to have to be that fixed in Glorantha. After all, it's all just some pieces on, the, on strands of, web, uh, of the web of Arachnosolara. Absolutely. So just yeah, like yeah. Uh, j- just like our own universe expands, and you're saying that the the lozenge of Glorantha expands slightly, also. <laughs> well, uh, you can have stuff folding in or out of the web, at least in my game. So there will yeah. be valleys which are uh, approachable only from a certain direction, and it has to be uh, in mist or clouds. Okay. So yeah. yes, um, the map is not uh, the territory. Yes. <laughs> Um, on a purely, uh, you know, spreadsheet materialism uh, plan, did you uh, did you have to make like conversions between, you know, distances on the starter set map versus distances on the guide to Glorantha, Oregon, Argar Atlas maps, and things like that? Um, no, no, um, because because as I said, the taking um, the Starter set mappers as the map. Um, obviously, right. the Argan Argar yes. Atlas is is just propaganda put out by troll traders. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no, let's see. I've just insulted Arganagar. I did Yuanlio last time. Oh, that's a pretty good go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, that was a, a conscious decision. The only yes. thing I think which I did was um, put imperial measurements in as well as metric. Right. But didn't you have to use the Organargar Atlas maps to go beyond the limits of the starter set map? No. So there's there's been some. Uh, so Jeff has um, put out a number of Greg's original map shorts in right. the yes. Facebook group, and it's a case yeah. of lining some lining some of those up and going. Well, yeah, that's about right. Okay, um, and there's some of the <laughs> bits and pieces and, and it's a case of yeah that's right but some of the names don't line up some of the places yeah. are not named on the sartar map yeah. um which is problematic because you can't just keep on going unnamed village number three so, <laughs> um, so, so some of those were um either made up out of whole cloth uh, and they're marked in the publication so that people can just ignore them and um, put their own names in. Yeah, you've um, got like a little cross thing, I think, on the... on the. We have, um, the, we have the dagger mark, as it's called. Um, yes, the dagger mark. And, then, and then there's uh, the link mark, um, if it's totally off the map. Right, um, okay. But going through all of the publications, including the Hero Quest ones, um, to see what was basically nearby and could be possibly brought into into play. And yeah, there's lots of little area maps for each uh, like region, stuff like that. So, I mean, it's got maps. I'm, I'm happy when it's got maps. So yeah, he, the book is uh, Highways and Byways and can be uh, bought on the Johnson Compendium on Drive to RPG. We'll have the link in the show notes. Uh, any last bit of uh, marketing or behind the scene anecdote you want to tell us before we move on to the main topic? No, there was, there, was a, there was a delay in getting it out because if I'm being prompted to puff anything, would be um, I I took a after moving back to the UK, I took a a, a short break from um, Ringquest and um, put out a publication on the Miskatonic Repository. Oh, nice! Um, called uh, Reading of the Will. So there we okay. go. So it's a Call of Cthulhu scenario. It is set in um, in the 1920s. Cool, oh, classic Call of Cthulhu, nice. Well, we'll have a link in the show notes for that too then. And now we're back and we're working on our new suite of publications, so fear not. The main topic today is uh, a continuation of the Vitorian Varosh experiences in Kais of Prax. And we're in uh, quite a bit, so we thought we need to uh, sum up the story so far. Vitorian is a point of uh, view character in Kais Seminole uh, Runquist supplement, Kais of Prax. The book that really uh, defined uh, Glorantan role-playing was RuneQuest by demonstrating how cults uh, create that extra bit of character integration into the basic rules uh, of RuneQuest 1 or 2. And those only gave a very a small glimpse of uh, how a cult could look. 
Viturian is a well-to-do and apparently also well-connected traveling merchant priest of Isseries. The story is set in 1614 to 1615, a decade before the current year of Runefest, playing in Lorantha, and was published 40 years ago. It shows that uh, real time moves a little bit faster than Loranthan time, but then uh, that's a mix of time and God time, so it might be excused. On the other hand, uh, the very next uh, publication Kaozin put out was uh, Cards of Terror, and that plays almost on the eve of the current date. So yeah. people have returned to earlier dates quite a bit and probably will continue to do so in, the, in their gaming publications. Yeah, maybe we'll, uh, we'll follow the, uh, the story in Cult of Terror uh, when we're done with Peter and Varosh. Um, okay, I'm going to recap quickly what happened to Biturians travels um he's basically going from oasis to oasis through western pracs where he meets the native beast riders and their cults um and also members of other cults outside of pracs like the so-called invader gods and and, and so on uh, Bitterian hires mercenaries buys and sells merchandise runs into an increasing amount of trouble and misfortune uh, early in the story, he buys a slave called Nora Yip, uh, a woman who pleads him to also buy her brother, a young boy named uh, Morak. Over weeks of travel, Nora Yip becomes less of a slave and more of a companion to Beturian, which is going to uh, come in play in the episodes we're looking at today. Uh, Morak is also revealed to be a special child with horns on his forehead. Lunar merchants and missionaries seem extremely eager to acquire him in the name of the Red Emperor, which frightens Bitterian quite a lot, and it's sort of a you know mystery plot running through that story. Uh, last we saw Bitterian, he was uh, settling at the market of the you know widely ignored and unsuccessful lunar outpost in Corflu in southern Prax. He had a series of bad luck and bad decisions leading him uh, leading him there. And things went from bad to worse when his mules caught some sickness and died. Um, a high priest tried to get Biturian to go on some dangerous religious adventure into Volter country, but Biturian refused, packed the little goods he had left and headed back north. And so we are looking back at Biturian, who is currently um, going back north with Nora Yip, Morak, and just the minimal stuff that they can carry, because I think... You know, at most they maybe have a mule or two still alive. Uh, I don't think worst. so. <laughs> yeah, you think they all died? Yeah, okay. All died. Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the next leg of the journey is tied to the Chalana Roy uh, write-up because, like, you know, each leg of Bitterin's journey is tied to a cult uh, because, like Jörg was saying, they sort of illustrate how each cult would look like in the world of Glorita, which is like super helpful and very nice. So yeah, they camp at uh, a place called Horngate and, you know, interrupt me whenever you have some comments. I'm just going to go through <laughs> the story and whenever you have comments, you interrupt me and we can uh, we can discuss yeah. it. They go to uh, Horngate and start looking for healing plants. They find a, a few healing plants for this or that disease, and that sort of ties into the um, to the rules for looking for healing plants, refining their uh, medicinal powers and preserving them and all that. There's a bunch of rules there that have been now translated to um, RuneQuest Glorenta in the Red Book of Magic. 
Was it Red Book or was it uh, the Weapons and Equipment Guide? Red Book of Magic. Okay. Yeah, it's got it's got one page about it. Uh, actually, I was comparing the two, and I am very sad to report that although most of the rules are pretty much the same here, the new rules made definitely the D12 completely useless because mm. before uh, the uh, the table that showed the <laughs> potency, I think it, it should, it's the potency of the plants, had some entries with like a D12 potency in them. And that has all been replaced with D10s in the new, um, in the new rules. So I'm asking you, what is the D12 good for now? Huh? Uh, is it? Oh, Oh, it's still... I would I would need to I would need to check. I think um, the Jang part is still a D twelve in um, the what? <laughs> and Jang. Uh, and of course, you can put it before you and uh, show the strike, and you're going to act. Yeah, yeah, you can maybe use, <laughs> use that. Um, but no, I mean, if you look, if if you want to follow uh, to follow it, Red Book of Magic page seventy two. There's no D12 in sight anymore. But hmm. if we look in uh, the Weapons and Equipment Guide, page 31, we have the Zhang or Yang plant, which is, is specifically mentioned. Oh, that's and what you mean, yes. Okay. At sea season is 1D12. Oh, there, D12. You know, I'm half, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm half expecting that to be corrected in the Well of Dahlia Q&A to a D10. <laughs> <sighs> They're stepping down. <laughs> but yeah, let, let's keep an eye on the D12. Let, let's try to save the last D12 in the, in the RuneQuest rules. <laughs> Are you suggesting that in future publications I should include the D12? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, any comments on uh, finding plants? Uh, my main co uh, comment is that with Chalana Arroy, I would have expected big healing mojo magic. Yeah. And we see nothing of that in this part of, in this leg of the story. Not yeah. a big resurrection. No struggle with spirits. True. It's um, in fact the the healer does very little. We have the the three days before they get to Hongate where we have our, our party spending the time finding herbs and we we learn about herbs and their uses and we even get some names, only one of which um, appears in the new section. But, of course, different herbs do the same job but have different names, and that's the yang plant, which I noted is worth um, three lunars. Mm -hmm. um, per leaf, and there are five leaves, so he'd be bringing in 15 lunas per flower um, on his fine. He would have found at least three of those. But as um, Jorg says, the actual um, encounter with the priestess has very little to do with healing. Yeah, true. Next, they you know continue north to the oasis. I'm not sure what oasis that is. But basically, they go there because they want to find plants. You know, they're only good for a week. Even after a day, I think they lose quite a lot of their potency. So um, they, you know, they hurry to find that healer, which is going to do the uh, preserving of the of the herbs and the refining of the medicine and all that. Of uh, note, they also find some Menno Half there, the Agimori. 
which um, so they're sort of like super humans of frags, I guess. They fare very poorly when it gets below 10 degrees Celsius. But in practice, they sort of thrive and they have like, you know, way better stats than uh, humans. But um, I don't know, have you ever had Aguimore in your games? Because I was looking it up and they don't really get used in any of the published uh, material. Uh, they have quite a, quite a bit of a section in Borderlands. They have a section that explains who the Agimori is, so sort of the equivalent to their write-up in the bestiary, but then they only get used once in a random encounter, uh, encounter I think. And one of the pre-generated uh, characters in the River of Cradle scenario is an Agimori. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's those are the direct uses I can tell without consulting any further. Yeah, but notes. have you ever had Agimores in your games? Uh, well, I've played Nomad Gods, so yes. <laughs> but uh, no, I uh, haven't had any uh, encounters with them yet, but I'm playing my third game in Prex now. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. I've avoided Prex before. But right now, <laughs> right now, I'm right in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> the only time which I heard of Agamori being um, used is in a live play uh, episode of um, Old Men Play RuneQuest, um, mm-hmm. yeah. where the party is involved in a hunt for dinosaurs taking you along with the Agamori as hunters. That's the only scenario which I'm aware of. Well, you know, I'm going to have to put some Agamori in if my players ever go to Prax. And of note, I did check uh, because um, Biturian says that at first he was like, oh, good, a bunch of Agamoris, they don't know much about plant lore so I, I can you know sell them some plants uh, until he says like oh damn now I actually there's a healer and the healers do know about plant lore and like yeah. at first he was actually happy to not meet any Erythia priestesses so I did check and yes the Erythia cult has plant lore as a cult skill whereas the Agimori who are mostly found child uh, which is some sort of um, hunting cult but they do not have plant lore so they don't know uh, most of them might not know about plants unless it's their hobby. Yes. <laughs> Plus, it might be too cold for them to actually think straight. It might be trying to be a... Well, you know, the, it's seven degrees is the minimum for early sea season, and the Agamori don't function well, you know, below yeah. uh, below 10, so... Does <laughs> <yeah. laughs> it get that cold in France in the sea season? Oh, yes. Oh, Okay. I mean, uh, they have one spirit there, the white lady, yeah. which is not Shalana Aroy, mm-hmm. but uh, a cognate of Inora, the goddess of mount, uh, mountain top ice. Mm-hmm. And okay. she's a bringer of fertility because uh, the horror rhyme, uh, which goes down, will uh, serve to fertilize the plants a little. Okay, so next Bitterin gives the, the herbs to the Shalana Roy healer who does all the preserved herb and stuff like that on it. Yeah, but he does and, it for free. Why? Uh, well, she does it for free because right after that she starts the, uh, what's called the Lightbringer Summons, 
which is this sort of poem that starts, you know, with chaos stalks my world, the bruise have bruised me, the hand has fought me, etc., etc. So the, the text is in Cult of Prax, and I believe it might even be in, well, it's in a bunch of publications, but it is the, uh, I guess, the statement that Sean Arroy tells Orlanth and his buddies during the God time to call upon them to, you know, follow her and go on some grand dangerous adventure or something. Mm, uh, yeah, well, they, uh, the, uh, the encounter was between two groups. Orlanth, yeah. uh, Orlanth Lanc- had already met Lankomai and Isseries on okay. his way through Relios. Mm-hmm. So that's um, during their journey to the west to try and yes. get to the gate and go in yeah. the underworld. Right. And yeah. they are meeting uh, Chalana Arroy, who had been following uh, Flashman for a while. Mm-hmm. And shortly after that, they approach uh, the Ebon City or the Ebon Camp, where a certain uh, miscreant uh, by the name of Yormal is about to be executed. <laughs> okay. That's how the uh, that's the meat cute of the Lightbringers, uh, which we are discussing uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this Lightbringer summons uh, may have started the Lightbringers as a party. Okay, yeah, but the Whiter only comes after they rescue Yoma. What does Ermal have to do with the Whiter? I have no idea why, uh, why Yomal is that necessary, but apparently he is. And <laughs> Critical mass. You've just got enough people to get that word to become. Yeah, so... Yeah. I, I guess well, it's, uh, not, uh, it's not a big adventure movie as long as you don't have the comic relief secondary character. <laughs> Maybe. Well, uh, nowadays the critical mass is 50 worshippers, but the Lightbringers make do with six main characters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the healer says this thing, and in theory, Biterion is supposed to go with the healer, do whatever mission she needs to go fight chaos or, or whatever it is. Well, uh, to give all reasonable support. As far as I understand, so there, there's a couple of those things, right, in, that are built in the setting and in the cults that you've got these traditions that are very strong where, you know, if somebody says that, you need to do this. Uh, the core rule book has those uh, Windlord challenges. Uh, yes. For, you know, when a Windlord meets a Priestess of the Earth or meets a Yelmalion and et cetera, et cetera. My understanding is that this is part of the sort of binding traditions that maintain the proximate holy realm over Sartar. I mean, again, like I barely understand all that, all that stuff, but my understanding was that it's these kinds of traditions that are happening sort of all over Sartar and the holy country that do basically low-grade reenactment of stuff that happened in the God time, and that maintains you know, a background noise of hero questing vibes, uh, well, which makes it easier to contact the god time anytime. I wouldn't uh, wouldn't make it uh, depend on the proximate holy realm. I would simply say this is what uh, maintains the world. 
the other thing, of course, uh, if you maintain the world, the holy, approximate holy realm has a chance to manifest. <laughs> right. I don't know. I, I seem to remember either, either Jeff or uh, David Scott mentioning some sort of relationship between the two somewhere online. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, the more you live and uh, breathe these rites, uh, the closer the God time will come. So I always read this as being a summon to take part in a hero quest because um, later on, Jiren says hero questing um, was voluntary for me, not compulsory. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, this is a an, another one where he's getting involved with hero questing, as we've <laughs> seen and discussed through through the other um, interactions with cults. Yeah. Um, and but then he's already yeah. he already is on one with his Morak uh, problem. Uh, although although uh, he may not have realized yet. I wouldn't qualify that as a hero quest myself. But uh, but of note, this isn't the first time that he refuses a call to adventure, you know. <laughs> there's, been a, there's been a few NPCs who come to him and say, like, you know, here's this thing, you need to go, like like I mentioned, he was supposed to go to Volter Country to do some mission with the, the whole Gannert skin pieces stuff yeah. in, well, in already the previous in episode. And, yeah, and he's already like, no, in no, Pevis, he was supposed to go to the rubble. And didn't want to. <laughs> oh yeah, right. You see, he's um, he's basically played by a very uh, a very annoying player who keeps refusing the GM's uh, <laughs> the GM's adventure seeds. Does he? I mean, he swallowed uh, Norib hook uh, bait and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Fool me once, shame on me. <laughs> Fool me twice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's this big fish it swallows you no <laughs> different story is it um, yeah yeah. at that point Biturian is not really um, not really keen on going and he's even less keen on going when the healer uh, well actually no not the healer but I Whisper he's, I think I Whisper he's, he's a light spirit right? he's a light spirit yeah uh, which yeah. is barely uh, left alive after sacrificing most of his uh, soul for divine intervention right yes yeah he he almost killed his light spirit to save himself when he was captured by the Yelmalians I think and forced to participate in one of their hero quests. Yes. Uh, and, and here, I Whisper detects the ghost of Alain, a sword of Humact, which uh, apparently died fighting Bruce in Sog's Ruin. And this is sort yeah. of a callback to an earlier episode of uh, Bitterest yeah. Travels, where when he was in Turne Altar, he met Alain, who was fighting Nameless over you know, Nameless trying to raise some of the Humectis to go to Dragon Pass when he was trying to raise uh, his friends to go fight Bruce in Sog's Ruin. So he lost against Nameless. So I guess he went to Sog's Ruin with only a couple of his buddies while everybody else went to follow Nameless. And of course, they were they didn't have enough people and probably the whole party died or at least Allah. So now he's a poor ghosts um i was wondering a bit of, a little bit about that because becoming a ghost uh, basically is uh humaki's way to serve beyond death mm -hmm. 
unlike Zorak Zoran, where you send your body to do some more work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he may send his ghost to do some well, uh, further work against the undead. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I wonder whether uh, Beturian is a little bit mistaken about the nature of Alan's presence there. What do you mean? It's possible that Alain sacrificed himself and sent out his ghost uh, to deal with a problem he wasn't able to do while he was alive. But yeah. that's a scenario that remains to be written. I mean, the buying ghost spell, which Hamakt has, generally binds things to places. And there's the comment that uh, ghost, whis ghost whisperer, eye whisperer, um, says that he... <laughs> Sees the um, the the ghost of Elaine plaguing the consciousness of the healer, um, which would be unusual to have it sort of associated, if it's actually physically manifest to a person, uh, but your grantham may vary. Um, and he also refers to um, him as being an undead, which is a yeah unusual turn of phrase for. Um, for a Humakti ghost. Yeah. Yes, uh, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit uh, of two minds about what happened there. But then I whisper lost a lot of his capacity, so he may not be the most reliable uh, witness anymore. And also Biturian might not, you know, use the correct vocabulary here because he is a slightly in the reliable narr narrator in terms of, you know, not necessarily knowing the distinction between undead and ghost and, and what exactly yeah. are the uh, the rules and cult secrets of Humact. So, you know, he might be just slightly mistaken. I don't know. Yeah. He basically uh, knows when to uh, strike a deal and uh, undead are bad customers. <laughs> yeah. Usually. Um, with, the, with the greatest respect to, to Humact and... <laughs> Mukto followers, um, you don't really go poking around in the religion of the god of death unless you kind of commit to that path. And I suspect, as a trader, he wouldn't have made too many inquiries about the finer points of um, Humukti worship. Yeah. Um, not well, um, uh, the Isaris uh, trades in, in their special magic. So he might that have insights. Uh, he might have insights others don't have. That is true. Um, yeah. Uh, once again, Biturion says, "Like, no, I've got you know more pressing business. I can't go on an adventure right now." And so he he says he asks Isaris, who answers that the path to Herodom lay in Sog's ruins. And still he refuses. So it, like, it sounds to me like he basically does divination. Isaris tells him, like, yeah, go to Sog's Green and be a fucking hero. And Bitterion <laughs> says, and Bitterion <laughs> says, like, no, no, thank you, God. Is that is that what you understand here? Uh, no. Um, what I'm hearing here is if you manage to return from uh, Sog's Ruin, you will be a hero. Sure. I mean, this is, you know... <laughs> I guess if you, if you manage to, but yeah. um, it's a reason might be a mercenary ma a magician uh, cult, but mm -hmm. it's not really a frontline fighter cult. He may be sure. the best scout you can have, but uh, there are yeah. other scouts which are 
quite good at other things. So people know where the so, Fox runes are. <laughs> so if you do your divination, you get your 10-word answer. You know, the path to heroes and blazing socks ruins. Brilliant. And then he follows it up with the second question, must I go? And the series goes, <laughs> no. So it's <laughs> like, well, you know, there's, there's a path there. Go there. Yeah. You know, you can do it. You can become a hero. Yeah. Do I have to do it? No. Yeah. But I mean, it means that he refuses the call to adventure from the healer. And then he refuses the call from adventure from, in, from his own god. No. The, the offer of adventure. The possibility yeah, yeah, of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, he, he does a bargain with a squad, <laughs> which is very much in character. <laughs> yeah, actually, you might you might note that, for example, Harmast, one of the pre-gens in RuneQuest, doesn't have any devotion to Isaris, unlike most other characters, because I'm pretty sure that a lot of merchants are not religiously devoted to Isaris, because they a more materialistic or transactional cult. So it's like, you know, I'm not devoted to Isaris. I'm just doing business with Isaris and, and using Isaris to do business. So, you know, merchants might be less inclined to follow the word of their God, basically. I'm wondering uh, whether I should protest that, Pluto. <laughs> oh, yeah? I mean, you can protest it, but it's a fact that it doesn't have devotion. Uh, that Hamas doesn't have devotion. Yes. Yeah. Might be an oversight. Uh, it's not because we we remarked on it during our game at Chaosium Con with Jeff Richards, okay. and Jeff replied like, "Oh yes, because it's just a transactional relationship." All right, for so Harmast, it's, it's not it for Harmast. Yeah, I mean, maybe yeah. Beterian has devotion, but yeah, okay. If if you uh, have word of Jeff, uh, that's... Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I can play the Jeff card. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, on on the other on the other hand, uh, Hamas is not a priest. Beturian is. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so at that point, uh, Beturian doesn't want to go hero questing or whatever it is that is happening in Sog's ruins, and so he negotiates instead to provide his support in the form of a true stone filled with a whole bunch of spells, which the way I read it, uh, it says that it's got all his rune spells for a week and all of his personal power for a day. So I assume he basically blows most of his magic points in it, plus casts a whole bunch of spells in it that the healer will be able to use. Of course, this is before the rune point system, so... yeah. Yeah, I don't know if... Well, I mean, technically, there is no proper rules for true stones in Cults of Prax. There is an appendix on true stones in Cults of Prax, but not actual rules, more of a sort of vague description so that people can make their own rules. But we do have yeah. now proper rules in the Pegasus Plateau where um, that sort of says that you can put the rune points in it by casting spells, but... Those rune points and magic points are, well, the rune points mostly, are kind of stuck there and you can't replenish them until the true stone has been used and the things yeah. have been cast. So uh, giving the, uh, the true stone is a bit like giving community support, mm -hmm. I guess. 
I mean, uh, other other people might give uh, give the item with the whiter in it, like uh, like I give the black spear to uh, uh, Vasana later on for a, a sneak by Polo quest. Yeah, and Victorian uh, uh, sort of goes without going uh, himself. Yeah, it's granting's giving something of significant value to go in in his stead. Yeah. Um, It's it's a so especially good value considering the RQ2 rules on rune magic, where I believe that he casts his rune spells in the stone and then they're gone. No, I don't know. They're used up. Yeah, but aren't rune spells all basically one-used spells in RQ2? Not for priests. Oh, okay. <laughs> but in in RQ2, he can't use them until they've been cast out of the spell. Like uh, the Pegasus Plateau rules. Yes, yeah, that's what the appendix says without making it a rule, but it describes it like as such. So he's basically stuck without his spells or most of his spells, at least until the healer comes back or until she actually casts them while doing yeah. whatever. Uh, I suppose yeah. that a, a bunch of those spells would be cast fairly quickly, like Path Watch. She probably put a Path Watch in there. Yeah. Um, well, we can track those um, from the other diary entries. Uh, you mean what spell he has? Yeah. Um, so the four specific spells which are noted um, in the sections after his hand over the rune, rune spell. In Lankomai, he casts Pathwatch. In Kaigleiter, he um, has cast Crate. No, he hasn't cast Pathwatch. My notes are incorrect. There is a spell he's cast. Um, but in um, Kogelaichi, he cast Create Market and Pathwatch. In Zaraxaran, he um, cast Summon Ancestor, Shield and Lock. So he's got those back. So they must right. have been used. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, Shield is a, a common spell in Request 2, if, if I remember correctly. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> or, what, or, is it, or is it the associate spell from Orland? Good question. Uh, uh, the Summon Ancestor was a special gift from the baboons, so that doesn't count. Right. I mean, he, 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 could have traded, he could have traded some spells, too. Yes. Uh, I have no idea whether uh, traded spells can be cast into true stone. It would be an interesting concept. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> If you can cast it, you can put it in the true stone, I would say. But then, uh, in that case, he, uh, he could have given her any kind of magic. Yeah, that's the that's the great thing with uh, Isari's rune priests. I got this from uh, Austin Conrad that they are effectively walking wild cards because you never know what kind of rune yeah. spells they're packing from yeah. some previous trades. So you know they might have some weird. Troll magic or yeah. elf even magic. Le yeah. Even less uh, predictable than an Anidon magician. Yeah. Who has access to uh, almost every uh, cult spell somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, last bit I wanted to say is also, uh, funnily enough, true stones are a good use for sling ammunition. There are rules for using true stones as, as, as weapons. <laughs> And they're not too bad, yes. actually. <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway um 
Yes, there was the request three rule that uh, contact uh, unprepared contact with the true, true stone compelled you to cast some of your rune magic into it. <laughs> Which would be a good alternative to slave bracelets, come to think of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about slave bracelets in a bit. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we catch up with Bitterian three, three weeks later, I think, in yeah. Paris. I mean, Drew, Drew, does that does that make sense in terms of distance? <laughs> uh, well, as the crow flies, it's uh, about 170 kilometers across the long drive. Um, so that would be about 15 kilometers a day on foot in wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 12 days if paths were available, yeah. if the weather was kind, you know, yeah, somewhere so around yeah, eight days. Yeah. Ten, well, yeah. yeah, 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I think we catch up with Bitterin when he is in a Lankermai temple in Paris. Is that correct? Yeah. Like he's talking to this sage called Valstach. Yeah. And as far as I understand, he's selling yet another true stone. Uh, his last one, yes. And so he is, he says he's nervous, nervous. And so he got only a thousand and fifty wheels for that last true stone. But only. Yeah, yeah. only. I mean, I think he sold his last true stone for uh, fifteen hundred back at the block. Fifteen hundred Luna at the block. Yeah. Oh right, yes. So yeah, I was actually wondering if it was a typo and it which and it should be a thousand and fifty lunars as opposed to a thousand and fifty wheels, because a thousand and fifty wheels means uh, twenty one thousand lunars. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking it's maybe a typo. And he sold it for like two thirds of the price he got before. How many lunas in a wheel? Twenty. Um, well, uh, prices at the block should be a lot lower than in Pervis. Uh, yeah, but still, he should be happy to sell a true stone for twenty-one thousand lunars here. I mean, I don't know why he's sad. He, he could have gotten more. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a player. I don't know what, what do you think, he, he does say I only got another one thousand and fifty wheels for my effort. So right. you know what is it is there something else which he's not disclosing what he got? Either way, a hundred wheels is one encumbrance. <laughs> so he's got like a thousand encumbrance with, with that with those wheels? A uh, hundred wheels. If he got a, uh, if he was paid in wheels, um, he would have uh, what um, ten and a half encumbrance. Yeah. Um, unless, of course, he got a letter of credit. Um, yeah. But well, if it was all done in lunar or clacks. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. On, on the other hand, he's getting a whole zoo of sages to do as to do their work for him, and if you've seen their rates. Even a thousand wheels are not a, not that much of money to go with. Well, I mean that zoo of sages. So because yeah, after he sells the <laughs> true stone, the next day he returns to the temple. I assume that's the Lankormai temple. Yeah, and he says it's like crowded with priests and rune lords and even a few lunars and stuff like that. And they are all sort of casting analysis magic on Morak. But it's just like, yeah, I'm not I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Did he? actually come to the Lankormai temple and ask people to come and look at Morak and tell him what's what's up with the kid? 
I think that the circus is organized by Waldstadt, who's uh, parading all of his apprentices and some of his colleagues. Okay. Well, that would make sense. You're, you, you pay the, for the <laughs> service of the temple. Um, um, once you've um, paid over your money, the, the university mechanism starts up. All the researchers go around trying to find that, find out everything. And so up he pops and say, have you found anything? And just finds a whole bunch of research assistants, uh, lecturers, students. Um, and don't forget, this is still um, Pavis under lunar occupation. So you've probably got to rip you on to stages there. Um, yeah, that, all poking, that, prodding, and just going, "What? what is this thing? But that's the thing that doesn't quite make sense to me. Like, first, Biturin has way more pressing matters than having Morak uh, studied by a bunch of sages. Like, you know, he's got no more mules. He's, he's basically in a bad place. So he should be trying to, like, trade, really. to, to find his next gig and find his next trade, unless, unless oh, it is Morak. But even then... Like you said, he is in a lunar-occupied city, and last time when he was in Moonbroth, he got scared shitless because there were some lunars using, you know, mental manipulation magic on him to get him to sell Morak. So why is he drawing attention to Morak now in the middle of Paris? Well, it's a yeah. truth temple. That makes a difference. It's also um, the dying phase of the moon, so the Eripiontos wouldn't um, be able to... Uh, Oh, is it? Have yeah. very strong. Ma- yes, it's, it's. Have you not looked at the charts and highways and byways? Nicely spotted, Drew. <laughs> um, and I don't think he's. He, like you say he's not doing too well. He's just got you know almost eleven thousand wheels. Yeah, sure. Eleven hundred wheels. So that's not doing too badly, even by Ringquest Two standards. He's walking around with ten encumbrance worth of jingling coins in a city that is known to be filled with thieves and opportunist adventurers. You know, the first thing I would do is try to find bodyguards and. Um, well, he does. A bit later, yeah, but I mean, he spends two days hanging out at the Lankormai Temple. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, he has has Pathwatch, so he knows when he's going to be uh, attacked. True, yeah. He casts Pathwatch because Morak is getting agitated at having a lot of people. uh, He casts on on Morak, yes. Yeah, Um, which is nice because, you know, spending the rune points just to make a child feel better, that's, you know, that's commendable. And I think uh, that's showing how uh, deeply he is on his own hero quest uh, dealing with Morak. This is not a, not a normal travel anymore. This is now the hero quest part where he has been uh, caught in too deeply to do anything else. Even if he's not aware of it. Yes. So, he's been uh, dragged into the net. There is no escaping his games master. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So um, <laughs> next, he goes into a um, private room above the library where Valstach, the Lankormai sage, tells him what were the findings of him and his um, associate about Morak. And apparently he is, you know, um, maybe the child of a powerful spirit or the child of a god, like he might be a demigod. He's, he says he's not normal. He, he's a mutant in the cosmos. 
so he's basically like an X-Man or something. And uh, funnily enough, you know, being Lang Kormai, uh, he says he has a three to seven percent chance of surviving adulthood here, where he is dependent upon the compassion of others to survive. But among his own kind, he would have as much as a 34% chance. I like those very precise numbers. <laughs> yes. It's a bit like a, a total loss of life support in uh, so many seconds. Mm -hmm. Any engineer will tell you that the, that's gas work. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, what, what's your theory about Morak and, and why? What, what would kill him if he was to not go to his own kind, whatever that means. Well, uh, I think he does need some kind of magical environment to uh, calm himself, to not uh, sub, uh, to not go into those rages. It, was there any precedent in the Bitterian story that he was doing Yes, uh, well, we have a couple of times where Morak uh, displays quite a, bit, quite a bit of martial prowess. Remember, uh, one of them is still to come, but uh, he was kicking and beating uh, with surprising vigor and uh, stuff like that uh, when the Lunas molested him. Okay, uh, he fought in the Earth Temple in the Aretha section. Yes, um, and he's he a kid. Back. Yeah. Okay. So, Drew, what are your theories on Morak so far? If you Try to ignore what's coming next. Uh, well, according to the uh, to the sage, he's going is is a menace to whoever cares for him. So I think that's probably the the biggest threat. He's is unpredictable. He's you've, you've got the lunas hunting him. If he was um, out out of his own kind, whatever that might be, he's going to have a better chance of, of not being caught and captured. But outside of that community, you know, it's um, the luck of the draw. Uh, and that was my, my interpretation. Either he's yeah. going to be dangerous to himself or dangerous to those around him or cause it. Yeah, he will attract trouble. Um, right. And so that's possibly why hanging out with Beturian has brought yeah. Beturian such bad luck in the past few seasons. Possibly that, yes. Well, he um, does say whoever owns him will be cursed. Yeah, exactly. And so right after that, he talks a bit to Nora Yip, who explained, like, who complements a bit of this uh, information yes. with what her mother told her about Morak. And then immediately, you know, Biturian says, like, hey, you know, I'm setting you and Morak free. Uh, which Laura Yip says like oh this is how you escape the, the curse then and and Bitterin is like no no I also like you I mean you know let's hang around but I, I don't own you anymore well yeah. he he sets Nori free but doesn't say that he sets Morak free well Morak never wore those uh, bracelets yeah but he a, was Technically, a slave of Beturian. Yes, and yes now, he was. Now he's sort of like, you are not my slaves anymore. So Morak is back in your care, sort of. Or um, well, he never left it. Yes, but yeah, I don't know. I, I um, think Beturian is is um, killing two birds yes. with one stone here. Yeah, 
but the thing that uh, Norahit tells uh, has a couple of interesting information. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a dark ritual uh, by the bison tribe to deal with the coming lunar threat. To me, this sounds like um, Morag is about seven years old now, mm -hmm. which would uh, coincide with that ritual uh, having been done prior to the 1607 invasion of Prax, the first one which failed. Uh, okay. Yes. And it was done in a dark place. Uh, a storm ball was involved in some, me uh, some way, and... Well, the easiest theory is that uh, this uh, Bice tribe uh, summoned a Minotaur to mate with Nori's mother. And that Minotaur hero formed Stormball in some way. Okay. Yeah, I my theory was that they somehow brought Stormbull or one of the Praxian animal founders, like possibly the Bison founder, and one of those two got Nora Yip's mother pregnant and Morak is basically the son of a Praxian yeah. founder or Stormbull. Well, yeah. Um, uh, Nora Yip's mother uh, took the role of Arisa, presumably. And... Oh, are we suggesting a, an, another reenactment of a hero quest? Yes. Uh, basically a mating that is taking part, at least partway on the other side. Like I'm, I'm and, like the the sage clearly says that Morak's father is either a god or a powerful spirit. So you know, Stormbull yeah. or Praxian founder that fits. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, if uh, if you are born, uh, if you are conceived and right, uh, then uh, you will have more than one father and more than one mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, Even if you're only uh, adjacent to the other side, uh, there will be some divine thing uh, going into the child, resulting from that. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Drew? I think that Argrath is a usurper and that Morak is really <laughs> the white bull. <laughs> uh, oh, I love this, the yes. White The White Ball Society is formed, uh, I think it's the year after um, the, where we're looking at around those dates, so 16... 16, 16 I think, 16 or 17. So there you go, that's my theory. And it's, it's Argrath is just... Uh, Argrath is like um, John the Baptist to, um, to the, the ministry of Christ. He's, he's just I, the foreigner, he's just laying, laying the ground. I imagine that uh, uh, there's like a, a secret follow-up <laughs> history where Argrath kidnaps Morak and sacrifices him and binds his spirit as his fetch and says like, hey, look at this, I'm the white bull. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the other possible theory is that Morak used to be destined to become the next, uh, or to become one of the next Red Emperors for the Monster oh. Empire. I don't know. We, know, we know that the Lunar Empire is... <laughs> Gathering up all of the horned kids for some sort of purpose. Yes. You know, my my idea was mostly they just bleed them dry and the Red Emperor bathes in their blood or some shit like that. But, you know, yes, maybe but... maybe they also get the, the, the new masks of the Emperors from using some audition of horned kids. I don't know. Yeah, well, um, if you have read King of Sada, you will know about the Monster Empire which follows after Fagantis, uh, the second uh, son of Jareel. Okay. Uh, well, uh, suffers some major setback in his rulership 
when the uh, Shanks Alertus returns. Mm -hmm. And one uh, semi-official information we have is that Ragnarglar, or uh, not Ragnar, uh, Rizakark, is going to become uh, the emperor. Ooh. And maybe that could have been Morak. <laughs> if I was a lunar sorcerer, sage, divin diviner, and had got the, my message mixed up about a threat coming from Prax called the White Bull, um, you could see them being on the lookout for any unusual people um, to want to bring them back in. Wouldn't it be great if you could get the white bull on your side, um, bring them back to glamour, bring them up in the um, in the lunar way, uh, and bring peace <laughs> to Prax and Sartar and everywhere in yeah, between? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a... Uh, uh, I sound like a lunar apologist, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, there's another bull problem, uh, rather more pressing and uh, more urgent for the Lunars, and that's the upcoming re uh, release of Chark and the unreformed Kamenians uh, emerging from there. Oh, yeah, but this is far from Prax. Yes, um, I'm not sure that the Horned Children are Prax only uh, thing. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That may happen everywhere and may happen especially in the western reaches where uh, the bullshars have been a problem for the lunars for quite a while. Okay, yeah. I don't know too much about that, so sure. <laughs> but yeah, we're talking about very early days of uh, defining Garantha, and I'm not sure that the bullshars even were a thing when Greg okay. wrote that. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, Morak is <laughs> mysterious and 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 whatnot. Should we talk a bit about those bracelets uh, that Beterian had put on Nora Yip uh, and is now removing as he sets her free? Yeah, I mean he must have prized her quite highly if he uh, placed them on her. So there is a an appendix about the Savela bracelets in Cult of Frax. What I love is that they say the base price is 3,050 lunars. And I'm like, why is there the extra 50? Why isn't it like 3,000 3, lunars? <laughs> but <laughs> so they're pretty expensive. My guess is that Bitterin has a set of bracelets and it's not necessarily that he values Nora Yip, that he thinks Nora Yip is dangerous enough to warrant putting bracelets on her. It's more that... He has a pair lying around anyway, and she's his only slave at that point. Metric-using slave. Yeah, and so he's like, well, you know, I've got the bracelet there. I might as well use them. See, this comes back to... I, uh, uh, in Corflu, having no money, being stone broke, having to scrounge up herbs on the way back, he's got something worth three grand sitting around her neck, so why didn't he take it off? Why didn't he just take it off and flog it if he doesn't want to keep her in check. Well, uh, one thing is that he's afraid of mind magic. And Earth, of course, has, a, has some kind of mind magic, which uh, she uh, employs in fertility rites. Just think of what happens if you undergo the arming of Orland. You come out of it with a passion of love for the priestess who uh, did that. <laughs> or maybe he just forgot about it. Until now, and he's like, oh, yeah, 
So he's like three birds with one stone, you know. Yeah. He he, well, uh, he, he yeah, starts so... to care for Norayip. He gets out of the curse uh, of Morak, and he gets some bracelets to sell. Yeah. On the other hand, he loses his king. Sorry, <laughs> 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 let her go twice um, with, without it. Once at the wedding and once in the temple. It's it's interesting. You should say um, that she has. Um, potentially has mind uh, affecting magic because without doing any spoilers skipping ahead there's a reference to nori being a priestess and there's just the one all the other references are that she's an initiate but i think um, i think um, the priestess with the low, uh, lowercase p is used liberally compared to priestess with a capital p yeah, and then so there's what we might consider a god uh, talker. Yeah, yeah, probably that. And a god talker can be uh, of any kind of magical stature. I also think that this might refer to something like a spirit guide rather than an organized cult. Anyway, um, so he frees Nora Yip, uh, says that, oh, we'll take Morak uh, to his kin together and then maybe spend our times together as well. Wink, wink. And she just goes like, yeah, we shall see. But, you know, she takes <laughs> his hand. So uh, there is there is definitely a will they, won't they sort of uh, vibe there, which is uh, foreshadowing most of the uh, late 80s and early 90s TV series that definitely took this from uh, Cults of Frax. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm seeing a little bit of wipe of Diamonds Are God's Best Friend, or in this case, Wheels. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, one grand uh, Wheels. Uh, yeah. uh, st- still quite worthy. Okay. Uh, and for the third and last segment of his travel, so we are, I think, just a week later, and he's still in Pavis. No, uh, he's going. He's leaving Pavis and going to the Paring Stones, yeah, uh, northwest of Pavis, I think. Yes. And this time he hires some guards with um, all of the new money he got. Uh, he's got three series initiates, including a sword master. So I guess like somebody like Harmast, which knows to use a sword, uh, plus four Orlethi worshippers uh, led by a wind lord of the name of Krogar Wolfhelm. Yeah. Krogar shows up in a few publications. He He's involved in some clandestine Orlethi temple in Pavis and all that during the lunar occupation. So he's a, he's a known NPC. Um, he's a significant weapons trainer in... Um, running out of the temple as well. Yeah, I was surprised like uh, that they have an Orlanth wind lord doing training at the Humak temple. But you mean I guess... like Gareth Sharpsword? Yes, uh, they're friends. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who's a totally different person from Argos Pregnospear, even though you never see the two of them together. Interesting enough, post, um, post the liberation of Pavis, um, Craig Wolfholm becomes one of Argrath's 15 Thanes. Hmm. So it's not who you know, but what you know about who you know. Sorry, what you know, not who you know. Maybe that's how how Argrath learned about Morak. It's through Krogar. 
Cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, they go to the Pairing Stones, which is one of the original locations of the board game Nomad Gods in Prax. Yeah. And I believe it's inspired, like it's named after uh, Steve and Louis Perrin. Yeah. Perrin? Perrin? The Perrin Stone? Yeah. Um, and they assist, well, they witness an Orlenthi initiation ceremony where there's a bunch of new initiates and there is somebody who gets promoted to Windlord and is getting an allied spirit. Priest. Oh, uh, okay. uh, Is it a priest? It's a room yeah, priest, storm yeah. Vo- yeah, storm voice. Yeah, correct. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, there is some nice um, ceremony there. And Nora Yip and Bitterin pay some like five lunars to become lay members of the ceremony. Um, I guess, you know, that's what you do when you don't want to split the party and have two players just waiting on the Orlenthi doing Orlenthi stuff. Yeah, it's uh, basically a replay of what happened uh, at the pubs. Yeah. So only this time both of them uh, are only on the outer ceremonies. But that's still quite a display with all the enforcers uh, coming out. Like yeah. Windfist uh, uh, doing before we, get, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you to, do they actually need to pay Lunars to witness the ceremony? Because, I mean, sure, you can't, you can't really prove that you're a lay member unless you know the priest or someone vouches for you. But still, Isaris is an allied um, associated yes. cult of Orland, so... Shouldn't they be able to just show up and say, like, hey, I'm Isaris, she's... Um... Uh, yes, but, uh, hey, I'm a priest of Isaris, I'm go- going. I'm here for the free lunch, doesn't come that well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, associated is associated, you know? Yes, uh, but then if you're an associate initiate, uh, you have uh, more duties... And we know about Biturian and uh, duties to deities. <laughs> okay. Also, uh, he doesn't really have a chance to bluff because Krogar has already said to Farangar, do you mind if my mates come in? Are they members? No. So then they go, oh, right. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Like in, in the core rule book, uh, what is it? It's um, uh, Yanyoth. She doesn't even pay five lunars. She actually rolls some sort of orate or passion thing to say like, hey, you know, I'm from the associated cult of Fernalda. Let me in or else. No, uh, it's not but, uh, the associated cult. It's the overcult. I guess it's the overcult <laughs> in her case. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, they pay five lunars and, and, yep. uh, and witness the ceremony. And like you said, yeah, there's a bunch of enforcers who show up. What are enforcers? Uh, Spirits of Reprisal, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the first time, and I think the only time, we witnessed those. Yeah, and so they they seem to show up to check that everybody is in good standing with the cult before accepting them as initiates or letting them get promoted. I think they're doing just the big display of this is how powerful a cult is. Sure, yeah. I'm I'm a bit surprised that Biturian knows about them. You know, they could have been cult secrets and Biturian might have been like, oh, there's a bunch of weird spirits that I don't know. But he knows them by name. Uh, I don't think they are secret. I mean, uh, it's very public. Sure, yeah. 
I actually like how... Uh, so there's a bunch of enforcers. One of them are the uh, flint slingers. So there's like three types of spirits of reprisals described in the all-length write-up. Yeah. And one of them are the flint slingers who are specifically reprisal for people who stole from Orland's cult or stole from one of his associated cults. And there is this uh, funny thing is the flint slingers leapt over the heads of the crowds and clouds of impests made ringing sounds as they passed harmlessly among us. Several people in the crowd began scratching themselves absentmindedly. So I'm pretty sure there was a whole bunch of people who raided other temples and stole a bunch of shit who are now feeling very nervous right now. No, the impests are uh, the uh, smallest infringement for the smallest infringements. And I always wonder whether they were a gift from Malia. Yeah, they're the smallest spirits of reprisal which give rashes and stuff like that. But yeah, I guess between between minor infractions and stealing stuff, I guess there's yeah. a bunch of people. Uh, I think who it's are... like being late with tithes and stuff like that. All right. As a card carrying Orlanthi, um, what part of Orlanth adventurous don't you understand? It's kind of the raison d'etre to go raiding, um, to go digging around in old abandoned temples, and you know, eventually you're gonna unknowingly make a error. And end up with impests and things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or the other thing is uh, marital fidelity broken, which oh. also arrives with Orland uh, Adventurous. And it's not always Orland made me do it. <laughs> or if you say it too often, then uh, you might get scratchy. <laughs> I was only reenacting uh, the start of a hero quest with an older. It wasn't my. That's not going to wash, is it? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, apparently nobody gets zapped or anything, so I guess they're all clean or not dirty enough to matter. Um, speaking of being clean, uh, that's uh, sort of omitted uh, the ritual uh, purification before entering the rites. So yeah. maybe there's something like a shri- uh, shriving effect uh, by undergoing those uh, initial purifications. I mostly noted that um, the officiating priest is asking a whole bunch of questions to the um, to the candidates, and I think that is the sort of role playing of the um, initiation requirements. You know, in the core rule book, you have to yes. succeed three roles to show that you you know you know at least three skills and passions of the cult. And I think this is the representation of that, even though a couple of the initiates are like, you know, oh, come on, get on with it. You you know me. You know that I know this stuff. Yeah, well, Kroger doesn't and makes a nuisance of himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what happens next? Uh, there is, oh, yeah, the allied spirit comes forth and gets bound to a an ailings, I believe. Yes. Um, so again, it's probably a good way to at least role play a small scene when you have um, a player character leveling up to a rune level. But then immediately the game master goes like, ha ha, you can't refuse this call to adventure when your newly 
appointed a light spirit gets up on his hind paws and start telling you uh, go to Sven's town there is you know the wind calls there's an adventure over there I'm pretty sure the GM was pretty happy to sneak that in because you can't say no at this point but um, Bichurin can't say no well Bichurin can say no but whoever is playing um, the, the, the the gathered or lengthy can't really say no and so at that point the newly appointed uh, rune lord or um, storm voice. Uh, or storm voice, yeah, is have to, you know, say okay, we'll go um, at sunset. And Krogar was hired by Biturian. Has to say like, oh man, I I have to go. So can we figure out something? And yeah. Biturian says like, okay, sure. Here's you know, um, uh, you can go. Just leave, leave me with a couple of uh, a couple of guys. Yeah. May I point out one word? Yeah. And that's in trade talk, not in wind speech. Now, as it's an Orlanthi rite, and as it's a priest being uh, supposed to be being charged, why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't the spirit speak in trade in um, wind speech? Why is it saying trade talk, which is something Vaturin knows? Is yeah, it just being polite because there's guests? Yeah, I because think it's for the benefit. It's I think it's for the benefit of the audience. A uh, good part of which may be Praxian rather than Olympi. Mm-hmm. But you need to know storm speech to be in the cults. Yes, not not to be a lay member. I mean, not to be a lay member. Mm-hmm. I just thought it. You know. His, it's the GM saying, look, there's another adventure which you can have. You can join this map. Look, half your party's going. Yeah. You know, yeah. All those Orlanthi you've just picked up. Yeah, because the, the GM doesn't want just an Orlanthi party to go there. He, he wants to get mm. as many player characters as possible to go on this adventure. No, because... uh, no, no. Um, this is uh, another type of attrition to uh, Beturian's world. Yeah, but yeah, once again, Beturian is like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not going. <laughs> I'm telling you, the player playing uh, a Beturian is being difficult now. <laughs> <laughs> There's all these side quests, all these things pulling um, pulling, pulling Beturian away it's from a sandbox. his, his it's a sandbox own campaign. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's uh, the GM not really knowing what to do without Morak. So he's uh, giving uh, lots of excuses to procrastinate, <laughs> but Petrus player says no. Now we will get done with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have I have to decide what the fuck is Morak now. <laughs> I, I didn't think that get out of Moonbroth, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, that segment concludes when uh, Krogar leaves for this side adventure and uh, Biturian is left with a couple of Orlanthi initiates to go on to, uh, on to the next leg of his journey, which we'll do next time we uh, have yes. a Biturian Varush episode. So, yeah. Uh, Drew, what did you think about uh, this leg of Biturian Varush's travels? I think it's it's interesting. There's um, that there's less about the cults which he's interacting with than in the previous section. So that, yeah. as you all said in the Shana Roy, there's there's a lot about the hers, but there's not a lot about the healing, the resurrection 
um, stuff. With Lankor Mai, there's not a lot about the, the, the cult. Just You've got this greedy sage who does some stuff, then says, oh, we've done some stuff in the background. You don't need to know about it. Here's the results. Yeah, yeah um, we, don't, and, we don't get an idea of how the Lankor Mai cult is in the world, even though we are spending two days in the temple. Yeah. Yes. Um, and with the Orlanthi, I mean, it's a mystery why they went to Paring Stones. Because there's, it's not a trading place, and there's no reason why. I mean, the so I dug out two interesting notes in Hero Quest um, Pavis. The site is is described as a traditionalist Sartrite place where clans perform secret ceremonies such as initiations and hero quests. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of out of the way. I mean, yeah. it's on. It's kind of on the way to the next point which they're going to in Pegasus Plateau however it says that the stones are a traditional place for marriages between different peoples tribes and nations to create their marriage bonds so is that the real motivation I mean he's just freed Nori he's given his undying love they're both from different um, clans they're both from different uh, traditions so are they going there to formalize, not necessarily formalize, that's something else, but um, to for a commitment ceremony? Which is a bit of a dick move from Biturian because she has said, like, we'll see, you know, she, she hasn't committed to anything yet. Uh, yeah, she's had, what, it's, uh, how long is it? It's, uh, They've been uh, two... Uh, Three seasons together, I guess. Yeah, but look, so it's, 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 she's had five days to think about it after leaving Paris. Drew, <laughs> <laughs> you're such the romantic. <laughs> uh, this might be the place of conce- of Morris conception. Maybe. I mean, people of different origin uh, performing a mating or a ritual marriage. Yeah, but I mean, they're just. This might be the uh, the full circle for Morak, uh, where he now can escape the... Uh, and they, they are looking for his home, which they appear to know where it is. So yeah, but uh, there's, there's no mention of them doing that while at the Paring Stone. So, yeah, I don't know why they went there, but it's just on the way. It's an yeah. oasis of sorts, and... Uh, they were sort of surprised that there was this uh, right there, mm-hmm. not on a not on a weekly holy day. But yeah. then, if it's a hidden uh, ceremony, uh, it would make sense uh, not to make it when the lunars expected. Uh, but yeah, I think they're just passing through there on their way north, but we don't know yet what they are going yeah. to do. So, I, yeah, the- I'm wondering why they're going north. I know where they will end up, but. I wonder yeah. why they end yeah, up there. At, at this point, it's not very well explained, but at least I think the oral length episode is the best in terms of showing you something about the cult, like showing an initiation is um, yes is, is a good is a good thing compared to the to the other two, the Chalana Roy and Lankormai. So uh, it definitely adds adds a um, a a different dimension to to the to all of the other cult descriptions looking at the spirits of retribution 
because we, we know that they're in, every cult has them, um, and it's just kind of, oh, you do something wrong, something turn, may or may not turn up and tell you off. So having that section and tying it in with the, the Allied spirit, don't, you know, Allied spirit shouldn't just be a, a power source, you know, it should be a, a, your moral compass, your guide, your companion. So I think that that brings out those those aspects much more. Because yeah. you don't get anything about the different aspects of Warlands and Warlands in the world. It's a very focused um, and, and specific reference. And I think it's good. And I probably, you know, narratively speaking and gameplay wise, you know, although I'm a bit sad that you don't see the spirits of retribution, of reprisal, actually kick some ass. I think it's probably good to introduce them in a game in that sort of context so that your players know that there is such a thing as spirits of reprisals by you know showing them instead of telling them. And now they know that if they step out of line, those things that they saw last month are going to come after them, as opposed to, you know, the first time you introduce spirits of reprisals, your players might not even know about them because they might have not yeah. read all the books. And so all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, I can't, you know, steal shit now. Um, so I think it's good to do this kind of foreshadowing. Yeah. But then, have you ever have you ever used uh, Spirit of Reprisal in your game, even to an NPC? Uh, I haven't played enough yet to have uh, shown Spirit of Reprisals, but uh, I did mention them at some point for an yeah. uh, uh, another cult. Uh, I mean, I mean now I'm now I'm definitely going to have some for the cult initiation uh, scenes. Yeah. I mean, uh, imagine uh, you meet someone on the road and all of a sudden he gets attacked by Windfist. Yeah, yeah. That's that's also a good way to um, <laughs> introduce them. Uh, did you have that? I haven't had that yet either, but... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just saying, you know, it's probably good to introduce them before they go after the players, uh, player characters. <laughs> All the players themselves do. I'm always deeply suspicious of Asari's um, priests wearing gloves. <laughs> What do you mean? Uh, the spirit of retribution of raw greed being um, a gemstone burnt into the palm of their hands. Oh. So if you're ever dealing with uh, an Asarian, say, uh, those gloves you're wearing, those are kind of nice. <laughs> They're a bit bulgy yeah. in the center. I just, I just use it to handle the goods, sir. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Any last words? Well, um, this was uh, the last of the Lightbringers cards, which we have in Cards of Tracks. Yes. Uh, And it's, yeah. I think it's it's a bit ominous that we di didn't have a Yomar card back then. Right. Although I guess maybe he's not important enough in Prax. Well, he was important wherever he went. Or rather, he made a big annoyance of himself. And some of his worst deeds were in Prex too. Hmm. Or yeah. at least in the Wastes. For example, the creation of the Dairy Race. Oh, I don't think I know about that one. Uh, it's, there's a peninsula, uh, almost in Tashnos, where there now lives a race of identical green-skinned people who huh. are in tele telepathic uh, contact with one another. Okay. 
they were the result of uh, some father trying to save his son from uh, being uh, killed by whatever came there. Yuma uh, did a weird thing. Uh, look it up in the guide. Okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, um, next time will be the non-human gods, uh, some trolls and some elves. Drew, did you have any uh, uh, notes left unaddressed? I don't think so. Um, like I said, I think it's a, it's a, it's a. These last three are very different in feel to the previous ones. There's lots of interesting side notes that you could read into it, and there is the the whole feeling that Bitron has got himself into some deep water, and he's desperately trying to get out of it. Um, but if he has freed Morak, he's no longer cursed. So the next um, three cults should be plain sailing for him. Yeah, he shouldn't should, have right? any trouble. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, Drew, thanks again <laughs> for coming on to uh, the podcast. And Thank you for us. having me again. Yeah. And uh, once again, your new book, Highways and Byways, is on the Johnson Compendium and is waiting for people to spend uh, a few dollars on so go and grab that if you haven't yet and until we see some uh, more books from you or until we uh, get back to Bitter and Varrush we bid you um, farewell and safe travels thank you very much and the same to you cheers yes. thank you for listening to this episode of the God Learners our website is godlearners.com where you can find episodes, newsletters, and articles about Glorantha. Reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via Twitter or Facebook at The God Learners for any questions or feedback. We are The God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. <laughs>